Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. In the last two episodes, we followed the lives and careers of the Danish kings Valdemar I, his sons Knut VI and Valdemar II, and his son Erik Plaupeni. Collectively, the period bookended by the two Valdemars is known as the Golden Age of the Valdemars, partly at least thanks to the competent management of the kingdom's affairs by Bishop Absalon, who advised both these Valdemars. Through a series of wars, some upgraded to the status of crusades, the Danish crown extended its influence and control beyond the traditional boundaries of the realm, and new lands in Germany and Estonia found themselves under Danish rule. It was a golden age, not only for the kings, but also for the elites. During these years, the Danish nobility strengthened its position at the expense of the peasantry, when the things, the traditional assemblies for passing laws and adjudicating trials, lost much of their authority. The Valdemars also donated large tracts of land to the nobility and the church, thus increasing their wealth and influence. Danish peasants, on the other hand, can be forgiven for being somewhat less enthusiastic about these developments, and the various kings who reigned during this golden age had to crush several peasant rebellions, not least in protest against the ever-increasing tax burden. But it wasn't enraged peasants who put an end to the golden age of the Valdemars. No. As is so often the case, that was achieved by the infighting among the sons in the royal family. That story will, however, have to wait for another time. Today's episode will start our exploration of the incorporation of Finland into the Scandinavian cultural sphere. And, since the dominant cultural factor in medieval Europe was Christianity, it should probably not come as much of a surprise that this incorporation is done in the form of crusades. Today, we'll dive into the first Swedish crusade in Finland, and like any good crusade, this one also produced a couple of new Scandinavian saints to add to the collection. Episode 41, The Crusade That Maybe Never Was According to the chronicles describing the first Swedish crusade in Finland, Finnish heathens had been raiding and pillaging along the Swedish coast, and so the Christian Swedes decided to settle in Finland and spread Christianity, to calm them down and to give them a better life. Pure altruism through and through. A bit of projection, perhaps, since most of the raiding probably was directed in the opposite direction. Roughly at the same time, under the Valdemars, Denmark went on combined crusades and conquests along the southern coasts of the Baltic Sea in the 12th century, and would eventually make their way to the Baltic provinces. The crowning glory of that project was the conquest of modern-day Estonia in 1219. Danish activities in the Baltic is seen as a major reason for why Poland and the Baltic states became Catholic instead of Orthodox Christian. Sweden would also eventually expand across the Baltic Sea into Finland, spreading Catholic Christianity and capturing land as they went. Towards the end of episode 35, The Pretenders, we talked about the unfortunate King Sverker, who was knifed to death on Christmas Day 1156. The murder was ordered by a certain Magnus Henriksen, who wanted to be King of Sweden, because he was a descendant of King Inge the Elder. But Magnus wasn't elected king. Instead, a guy called Eric was elevated to that position. This King Eric occupies a central position in the myths about how Finland became part of Sweden. According to the legend of King Eric, better known as Saint Eric for reasons that we'll get into later in this episode, the vote when he was elected king of Sweden was unanimous. 
there were no rival factions scheming and intriguing, everyone wanted Eric because he was such an excellent candidate. Even if you were to take the North Korean-style opinion polls backing up Eric's popularity at face value, we already know that Magnus Henriksen had just had Eric's predecessor assassinated in order to grab the throne for himself. It seems highly unlikely that not a single man at the thing voting for who would the, the next king would be would have been bought to vote for Magnus. But be there as it may. We won't get stuck in that particular election, I just wanted to point out that the source material surrounding Eric isn't the most trustworthy. You should take it with a hefty amount of salt. We don't know much about King Eric. We don't even really know who his parents were, even though there's some speculation that he was a Geet and that his mother was a granddaughter of sacrificing Sven, that supposedly last non-Christian king of Sweden who got the job because he was willing to perform the pagan sacrifices his Christian brother-in-law, the king, refused to participate in. We don't even know for sure when he was elected king and for how long he reigned, not to mention over which bits of Sweden he ruled. Some sources indicate that he wasn't elected king after Sverker was murdered on Christmas Day 1156, but rather that Eric had been a rival king controlling parts of Sweden already since 1150 or thereabout. It also appears that Eric's rule never extended to Ostrogothia, where Sverker's son, Karl, was recognized as king. To make matters even worse, the unreliable and meager sources that we do have aren't contemporary with Eric at all. The first surviving written account mentioning him is a letter that his son, Knut Eriksson, sent when he was king. In that letter, he refers to his father Eric as King of the Swedes. So, in conclusion, Eric was of uncertain and not particularly illustrious pedigree, at least as far as monarchs go. He was king for a relatively short period of time, most likely only a decade or so, and his rule probably never covered all of medieval Sweden. By all accounts, Eric should really only be an insignificant footnote in the history of Sweden, and his legend is more than anything a reflection of the success of his descendants, who inflated the importance and holiness of the founder of their dynasty in order to glorify their own reigns. The most detailed sources we have describing the life and reign of King Eric were written sometimes in the 1270s or later. That's a whole century after his death, so there's no denying quite a few things may have gotten lost along the way, not to mention added. The most important source, the so-called Eric's legend, was also compiled in order to support the case for Eric's canonization, and that doesn't really strengthen its value as a useful source for historical knowledge about the actual King Eric, as opposed to his descendants' projected image of their forefather. All these highly unreliable sources depict Eric as nothing short of an ideal king, both just and pious. He supposedly defended his people against oppression, unfairness, and rudeness. On top of that, he codified laws and established religious institutions in Uppsala and reigned in perfect harmony with the church and its representatives in Sweden. In his private life, Eric's piety shone through in his many and long praying sessions, his punctilious observance of every fast, his giving of generous alms to the poor, his celibacy and his mortification of the flesh by wearing a shirt made from horse hair and by taking baths in ice-cold water all year round. Most of this is obviously hagiographic standard tropes used to describe anyone you want to put forward as a candidate for sainthood. 
But in fairness, it should be noted that archaeologists who have examined his bones have reached the conclusion that he did eat a lot of fish, which is an indication that he was prone to fasting, since a man in his position should have been able to get his hands on red meat if he'd wanted to. But the reason people remember Eric today has nothing to do with his loss or his fasting or his cold baths. What Eric is remembered for is the first Swedish crusade in Finland, starting a process that won the eastern shores of the Gulf of Botnia for Sweden. Even though modern-day historians cast doubt on the veracity of Eric's crusade, that he led it or that it took place at all, for a very long time the legend of Eric's crusade formed the basis for Swedish and Finnish understanding of their common history, and for that reason alone it's worth talking about, even though I strongly recommend not taking the story too seriously. Even those who claim that the first Swedish crusade did indeed take place can't seem to agree on when Erik and his crusaders set off across the Gulf of Botnia to Christianize the Finns. The general consensus is that it happened in the 1150s, but almost every single year within that decade has been put forward as the time it all went down. The most widely supported years are 1150, 1155, 1157 and 58, but other candidates are 53, 54 and 56. In other words, people are guessing wildly. Ultimately though, the exact year doesn't really matter. It's fine to be a little vague about it and say the 1150s, as in the almost certainly fictitious first Swedish crusade in Finland is supposed to have taken place sometimes in the 1150s. King Eric didn't go to Finland alone. He brought with him Henrik, the Bishop of Uppsala, who, according to the pious legends, worked so well together with him in Sweden, creating an atmosphere of bliss and constant harmony between the crown and the church. Bishop Henrik was of English descent, so his original name was probably Henry, but was tweaked in a Swedish language context. He came to Sweden with Cardinal Nicholas Breakspear in 1153, and it's widely assumed that he was supposed to have been made Archbishop of Uppsala. But due to some infighting within the church in Scandinavia, the independent Archbishopric of Uppsala was postponed, and Henrik was attached to the mission to set up a properly functioning church in Finland in the meantime. The traditional sources all portray the First Crusade as the first attempt to converting the ungodly Finns to the one true religion which up until that point had been completely unknown in Finland. But today, most scholars agree that this is all nonsense. Instead, there had been Christians in Finland for at least a century, if not more, and some even claim that southwestern Finland was already more or less 100% Christian when Erik and Henrik showed up. As I mentioned before, the official catalyst for the crusade was repeated attacks by heathen Finns on Christian Swedes, so King Eric merely put together a force to defend his subjects and to show the Finns an alternative to their current religion. Putting the crusade in this context is actually not so far-fetched. This was a turbulent time, with scattered fighting between Swedes, Finns and Novgorod, the old Scandinavian city of Holmgård. It seems likely that an emerging Swedish kingdom would have gotten itself involved in this fighting. It seems equally likely that said fighting would be described as a crusade a century later when you were trying to convince the world that the man who led the campaign was a saint. But I speculate. What the sources actually say is that Eric and Henrik had no choice but to start a war against the pagan Finns in order to safeguard the realm and to bring Christianity to the blind and evil heathen people of Finland. At first, Eric asked the Finns to accept Jesus as their lord and savior without killing any of them. 
but when they refused, he and his forces attacked. The fighting itself is supposed to have been relatively brief, and the better equipped and organised Swedish troops were soon victorious. When the battle was won, King Eric is supposed to have fallen to his knees and prayed to God with tears streaming down his cheeks. After he eventually finished his prayers, one of the men in his retinue asked him what he was crying about. After all, shouldn't he be happy after such a glorious victory over the enemies of Jesus and Christianity? The pious king is supposed to have replied that of course he was happy about the victory, but he mourned that so many Finns had fallen, Finns who could have saved their souls and won eternal life if they had just agreed to be baptized to begin with. As soon as the fighting was over, Eric and Henrik went on to baptize the Finns and to construct a bunch of churches in the regions of Satakunta and Finland proper. And no, I'm not trying to insult the other regions of Finland or call their Finnishness into question. The region is actually, literally called Finland proper. By the way, of course Finland proper has two Swedish flags in its coat of arms. I'm not making this up. Google it. Anyway, since the military part was winding down, King Eric felt that his job in Finland was done and he chose to return to Sweden. He had things to do back home, you know. But he managed to convince Bishop Henrik that he should stay around to preach to the Finns and in general make sure that they don't backslide back into paganism. According to the legend, Henrik agreed since he felt so sorry for all the Finns who were still living in pagan darkness. He was eager to give up his old privileged life as a bishop to devote himself to spreading the light of Christianity in Finland. Eventually, Henrik was rewarded for his efforts by becoming the patron saint of Finland, and to this day, January 19th, is his feast day. Unfortunately for Henrik, his elevated status is less a product of his success as an ecclesiastical administrator or as even a winner of souls for Christ, but because he was hacked to death and thus is considered a martyr. The legends of St. Henrik relate that Henrik was travelling through the country in the winter of 1156, and came to a farm belonging to a man called Lully. Lully himself wasn't in when the bishop showed up, but his wife was. When Lully eventually did return home, he was met by his wife, who lied to him and said that Bishop Henrik had robbed them, stealing food, beer and hay for his horse. When he heard about the thieving cleric, Lully flew into a rage. He put on his skis and set out to find the bishop and to teach him a lesson. He caught up with the innocent and therefore completely unsuspecting Henrik on the ice of Lake Kölienjärvi, where he proceeded to kill him with an axe without checking his side of the story first. Before he turned back home again, Lally stole Henrik's episcopal ring and his mitre, that is the pointy ceremonial hat that bishops wear. He put on the ring and the hat and returned home, no doubt mighty pleased with himself. When Lully returned home, his mother, who apparently lived together with her son and daughter-in-law, asked him where he had gotten the fancy hat from. Lully then tried to take it off, but when he did, his scalp came off with it. Then he tried to take off the ring from his finger, but when he did, all the flesh came off as well, only leaving the bare bones sticking out. Understandably, this completely freaked Lully out. He went crazy from a combination of fear and pain and ran down to the lake where he drowned himself. Meanwhile, back on the ice of the frozen Lake Gölenjärvi, Bishop Henrik apparently hadn't died instantly after all, because the pious sources tell us that he had time to instruct the coachman to place his body on a sled drawn by a horse and let the horse walk freely. 
When the horse would stop, the coachman should replace it with an ox and let the ox go wherever it liked. When the ox would stop, he should build a church. In this church, Henrik instructed that his body should be buried. It seems like a lot to ask of a coachman, but he agreed and did what the dying bishop had requested. The ox eventually stopped some 70 kilometers south in a place today called Nosyainen, and the church in that town still sports a medieval sarcophagus that is supposed to have been Henrik's. The route that the horse and the ox took eventually turned into a pilgrim's route, creatively called St. Henrik's Way. But his bones were far too important to have lying around in some small provincial church, so in the year 1300 they were eventually moved some 20 kilometers further south to the cathedral in Turku, the most important city in Finland at the time. St. Hendrik's bones actually survived the Reformation and were still to be found in Turku Cathedral in 1720 when the Russian army occupied the city during the Great Northern War. The Russians took the bones with them to St. Petersburg, possibly at the initiative of Count Gustav Otto Douglas, who defected to the Russian side after he'd become a prisoner of war. After the Russians carted off the earthly remains of St. Henrik, the bones disappeared and their current whereabouts is unknown. Only a small number of bones that supposedly belonged to St. Henrik escaped the relocation to Russia and remain in Finland today. They are divided between Turku Cathedral and the Roman Catholic Cathedral in Helsinki, itself dedicated to St. Henrik. So St. Henrik is a big deal in contemporary Christian Finland, also among Finnish Catholics. The day he died, January 19th, is his feast day and his name's day, and all this despite the fact that he has never officially been canonized by the Vatican. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's a fake saint though, he was just elevated to sainthood so long ago that the centralized process for promotion from regular guy to saint hadn't been established yet. Still, he's not particularly well known in church circles outside Scandinavia, and when Christians in other parts of the world talk about St. Henrik, they usually refer to Holy Roman Emperor Henry II, also known as St. Henry the Exuberant. More's the pity. Anyway, I guess I should mention that, just like in the case of King Eric, the oldest surviving written sources about the life and death of St. Henrik were written more than a century after he was killed, and they were written as a justification for making him a saint. In other words, they're not the most reliable of sources, and this has, naturally, led some modern scholars to doubt not only the miracles, the mitre, the ring and all that, but even St. Hendrik's very existence. Instead, they say the pious legend is modeled on the story of another bishop, maybe one called Henrik, who fought and died at the Battle of Futevik, that we talked about in episode 34, Royal Saints. So... Bishop Henrik didn't survive long after the First Swedish Crusade ended. But what about King Eric, who sailed back to Sweden? What happened to him? Surely, after such a resounding success like the Crusade in Finland, he must have been universally loved and respected by everyone back home. Well, of course not. Remember Magnus Henriksen, the prince who had ordered the assassination of Eric's predecessor on the Swedish throne in order to become king himself? He still hadn't given up on his dream of becoming king, and he was busy scheming against Eric. According to the pious myth about Eric, none other than the devil himself inspired Magnus. Whoever was whispering in his ear, Magnus tried to win Swedish noblemen for his cause with flattery, gifts and grand promises about what things would be like if only he were king instead of Eric. As is so often the case with conspiracies, at least the successful ones, 
All this flattering, gift-giving and promising was done in secret, and King Eric had no idea what was going on. Magnus even managed to amass a small army and marched against Eric without him knowing about it at all. So clearly, whatever qualities Eric had as a king, his intelligence gathering was subpar. Things came to a head on Ascension Day, Thursday the 18th of May, 1160. King Eric was in Uppsala, hearing mass in Trinity Church, when he was informed that Magnus and his army were approaching. Eric, or so the legend tells us, refused to flee to safety and insisted on hearing the mass to the end, before going out to meet the threat. When King Eric left the church, he was caught almost immediately. He was pulled off his horse by a bunch of rowdy rebels who taunted and stabbed him. The king was finally beheaded at a spot close to the stream that passes through Uppsala. According to the legend of his martyrdom, a well sprung up where his blood had been spilled. And that well served as the main source for Uppsala's freshwater for centuries. You can still visit St. Eric's Well today, and thanks to it being connected to the municipal water supply, you can even enjoy a sip of water when you reminisce about the tragic end of saintly King Eric. If you ignore the miracle with the well, the death of King Eric is actually one of the few things that we can be reasonably certain actually happened more or less in the way I just outlined. There's a papal bull to his son, King Knut Eriksson, that mentions that Eric was killed by his enemies, and modern scientific studies of his bones not only confirm that he was in fact beheaded, but also that he received several stabbed wounds to his back shortly before he died. After he'd cut Eric's head off, Magnus could finally realize his goal of becoming king of Sweden. But he didn't have long to relish his new position. He was himself assassinated by none other than Karl Sverkerson, whose father, King Sverker, Magnus had also assassinated that Christmas morning back in 1156. Sverker's son, Karl, known as Karl VII, no doubt felt that justice had finally been served. His father's assassin was dead, and he, the rightful heir, was now king of Sweden. It wasn't to last, though. In 1167, Eric's son, Knut, returned to Sweden, killed Karl VII and made himself king. It took a bit of work, though, and it wasn't until 1173 that Knut had finally defeated all of his enemies among Sverker's descendants and could unite the kingdom under his own rule. But the house of Sverker wasn't beaten quite yet. For the next century or so, the descendants of Sverker and Erik fought each other for the Swedish throne. When Knut eventually died, he was succeeded by Sverker II, who in turn was succeeded by Knut's son Erik, known as Erik X, who died of natural causes without an heir, and was succeeded by John I, son of Sverker II. But Erik's widow gave birth to a son posthumously, and the boy eventually grew up to take the throne as Erik XI, better known as Erik the Lisp and the Lame. He actually married some unfortunate girl from the house of Sverker, so in theory, their offspring would have united the two feuding houses, bringing peace to the kingdom. Unfortunately, their union was childless, possibly due to Eric the Lisbon Lame's dodgy gene pool, but the rest of the story about who was to rule Sweden will have to wait for another day. But back to King Knut Eriksson, who finally became the undisputed king of Sweden in 1173. He actually reigned for more than 20 years, consolidating not only his own rule, but also his father's reputation as a man fit to be saint. Just like in Norway, where they had Saint Olav, and in Denmark with Saint Knut, the king thought that having a royal saint in the family would boost his legitimacy and prestige. 
He used the memory of his father rather skillfully in creating a myth about a saintly king that had once ruled Sweden and whose descendants should be allowed to continue ruling in the future as well. It's at this time that the clear actual historical truth about King Eric gets blurred by the introduction of the pious legends about Saint Eric, including his crusade and the well that sprung up where he had been beheaded. And unfortunately, only the legends remain. But they were really successful. We have a surviving note from 1198, just a few years after Knut's death, mentioning that Eric was venerated as a martyred saint. Just like Saint Henrik became the patron saint of Finland, Saint Eric took on the same role for Sweden. May 18th, the anniversary of his death, became Saint Eric's feast day and for a long time it was a public holiday in Sweden. On that day, the reliquary containing his bones would be carried from the cathedral to the church where he was originally buried and there would be prayers for a bountiful harvest. Saint Eric's bones were also used during the coronation ceremony in the Middle Ages when medieval Swedish kings took their oath of office with their hands placed on the reliquary. From the 14th century, we have seals from Stockholm depicting St. Eric on the city's coat of arms. And when you visit today, you can stroll down St. Eric Street to St. Eric Square. The Catholic Cathedral of Stockholm is also dedicated to St. Eric. Eric was buried in the old Uppsala Cathedral that he himself had rebuilt. When the current, and significantly grander, cathedral was built in the 13th century, his bones were moved there. Incidentally, the current cathedral was built on what scholars assume is the ruins of the Trinity Church, where Eric heard his last mass that fateful day in May 1160. You can still go and have a look at Eric's bones, or at least the gilded silver box where they're kept. It's tucked away in a side chapel behind the high altar in Uppsala Cathedral. The current reliquary isn't the original though. In the 16th century, King John III had to melt down the medieval original in order to afford buying back a fortress from Denmark and fighting a little war against Russia. You know, regular royal expenses. So obviously, St. Eric was a big deal in medieval Sweden, and his reign took on mythical aspects of the good old days, when the laws were just, taxes reasonable, and the harvest never failed. But just like St. Henrik, he wasn't canonized by the Pope, but only elevated to sainted by the local church. We even have a letter from 1172 in which Pope Alexander III reports that he had heard that some people in Sweden worship a man who was killed while he was involved in drunken debauchery. The Pope is outraged and orders the Swedes to stop this immediately. Some scholars with a faiblesse for iconoclasm have liked to interpret this as a reference to the veneration of St. Eric and that the king consequently was surprised by his attackers not because he was deep in prayer, but drunk off his head. As fascinating as that glimpse into an alternative history is, there's no proof either way, since Pope Alexander didn't name any names. And we also have a letter of indulgence from 1256 mentioning both pilgrimage to St. Eric's tomb and various omens connected to the saint. So it would seem that the Vatican didn't actually mind the veneration of St. Eric. As I've mentioned several times already, we have no hard evidence whatsoever that the so-called First Swedish Crusade in Finland actually took place. And once we start to analyze what we really know about the two men who led it, King Eric and Bishop Henrik, what we knew, or thought we knew, turns out to be little more than mist that evaporates in the bright sunlight of historical inquiry. But that doesn't mean that there were no Swedish military campaigns in Finland at this time. We can be pretty sure that there were, and that they eventually led to the incorporation of the lands east of the Gulf of Botnia with the Kingdom of Sweden. 
Next time, we'll have a look at later campaigns, known to history as the Second and Third Swedish Crusades, that undoubtedly resulted in Swedish political power stretching across the Baltic Sea and expanding into what today is Finland. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom such as Wake up early if you want another man's land or life, Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or Speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.